This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Ramya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. Welcome to the program, everybody. Hope you're doing absolutely fantastic on this Friday. You gotta be. It is a Friday, and we're swinging open the gateway to the weekend. Brock Richardson joining me today on the program. Mr. Richardson, it is NBA uh, All-Star Weekend, of which really, as so many people as we've seen of late, are turning to more of a fan of the competitions as opposed to the actual Sunday night game in this in this application. Yes, I am one of those very people who will tune in to the skills competition only. I This year for the NHL, I tuned into both the game and the skills only because it was in Toronto. Uh, but normally I'm just a skills guy and then I'm done with it. I'm over it. The only negative on the skills for myself is the visual stuff. Obviously, there's a lot you miss. And I mean, you know, when you watch a game, you get at least your play-by-play action. You'll get some. But there's so much kibitzing around by the broadcast crews, the the team covering it. A lot of laughter, a lot of noise. Um, so there is a lot to, to miss. You've really got to be a fan of it. So I tend to step back quite a bit when it comes to any of the All-Star weekends. But I can tell you, what sounds to me the way these weekends should be going is skills. Um, the NFL, between the end of the playoffs and the Super Bowl, does their, quote, all-star game, unquote, with a few other ceremonies and things like that and skills. But one of the things that people have been complaining about was I can't see the players. They're in their, they're in their uniforms. They have the helmets on. I can't see them. So they did touch football when it came to the game this year, and a lot of people reacted. There was a lot of buzz on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's what the game is. The games are meant for is to showcase the actual skill that exists in, in the sports. I think it's easy for us to say, well, you know, we can, we can catch the skills, you know, through the games or watch the games nightly or weekly, whatever it is. But when mm. you separate the skill out of the actual game, that to me is the thing that, that I really, really, truly enjoy. Yeah, that's why we celebrate great shots, defense, whatever it might be in all these sports. We need to see it in that slow motion, um, not necessarily in game time. So those skill skill events and things like that that they put on for us to say, oh, wow, oh, my God. And they still work at it. They still want it to be something so special. Anyway, speaking of special, Brock Richardson joining me. Let's take a look at what we've got today on the program for you. Apple made an AI image tool that lets you make edits by describing them. John Beeler, uh, he'll tell us all about it on the app update. There's a new play-by-play voice for the Blue Jays radio broadcast, and there's a unique connection. I will tell you the details later on in my sports update. On the chatty bookshelf today, boy, are we ever in for a treat. Ryan Huey is joined by producer and host of Uncharted podcast, Alan Cross. That conversation later on in hour two, right here on Kelly and Rumya. So two years after it first debuted, 
Amy Schumer's critically acclaimed series, Life and Death, is almost back. Schumer, once again turning the awkwardness of life into poignant comedy with the return of her series Life in Beth. Uh, do I look okay? Well, it's too late. She tells me season two goes even deeper into Beth's relationships with her parents, her sister, and soon-to-be husband. Relationships that mirror Schumer's own life, but she's learned to clear storylines with her loved ones. There were no surprises. That's something I've done for a long time where it's really not worth it if it's going to you know, mess with anything in your actual personal life. So, All 10 episodes of season two of Life and Beth drop tomorrow on Hulu. Jason Athenson, ABC News, Hollywood. The amazing thing, Brock, that I find in this clip is the reference to how far is Amy Schumer willing to go. When, when you're... When you're actually doing a show, when you're saying, I'm sharing my personal life, things that have happened, that is the impetus of this and what really drives me, you do have to get to where you say, I'm not going to go there um, for multiple reasons. I mean, we all talk about family things that go on or circumstances in life. We hear our friends uh, go on about, hey, and then and I remember having a buddy who was working on writing a script, a play script. And I asked him, how, how deep are you going to go with this, with the family stuff? How close to the truth, real? And I'm not saying he was going to exaggerate it, but these were made-up characters. But how close to the reality of your family life are you going to go? Do you know where to not go? Where to say, that's enough, it's going to upset, set, upset people? And he did. And Amy Schumer here references that, knowing I, I've done that. <laughs> got the bad T-shirt, basically, for, for maybe going a little too far. Any idea how far you would go? If you were telling a story or wrote something or created a song, one of your favorite country songs, and you wanted to kind of express something from your past, family past, how far do you think you'd go or would you stay clear? I'm I'm pretty open to the things that have happened in my life. There is certain levels, too, I wouldn't cover. Um you know, I, I, but I think overall, Kelly, I'm really open, but there is personal life, not necessarily about myself, but about my family that I would go, mm, maybe I'm not going to step down this road right now because I'm not sure they're going to be comfortable with what I would say. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so important for us to know, especially if things are going good, but even if they're not. You know, how much salt do you want to pour in a wound or how much do you want to inflame a situation or just go down there for yourself mentally? We will step aside for a couple of moments as we're just beginning the program. We're swinging the gateway open to your weekend. Coming up next, gardener Susan Kearney tells us about her first crop of pink oyster mushrooms. Plus, she gets into a crop of hers that has never bloomed before. All that ahead as we start things right here on Kelly and Rumya. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. Over on AMI-audio, catch the pulse this Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific. 
This week on the program, Joita speaks to Andrew Leland about his book, The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. I mean, this is getting a lot of buzz out there, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of great conversations that uh, uh, are available. Joita has, of course, another great one. That's The Pulse this Saturday and Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, over on AMI-audio, available on your favorite podcast platform, and catch it on YouTube. Kelly McDonald with you. Thank you. I'm at the home studio in London, Ontario. And joining me from his home studio in Kitchener, Ontario, Brock Richardson. You know, Kelly, what I always find fascinating is our first contributor on a Friday can still talk to us about gardening even in the wintertime. So we're going to mm -hmm. do that today. Mm -hmm. Let's bring on Susan Kearney. Hello, I'm Susan Kearney. Join me on Kelly and Ramya for the joy of gardening by using touch, taste, scent, and sound. Susan, always a pleasure to have you on the program. And today you're going to touch on your first crop of pink oyster mushrooms. Mm -hmm. Yes, this, this was a gift um, to, um, for me. And um, I, I started growing them about oh, five or six weeks ago. And um, they, they they turned out um, much better than I thought. So I'm probably going to try this again. Uh, they were they were it was fun to grow them uh, and actually touch them every day because I had to mm. spray them with water. You don't water them, but you spray them um, with water so that they that's how they get their moisture. And uh, yeah, when they when when they finally matured, and I took them all apart and. Uh, serve them up for dinner and they don't feel like you know mushrooms they don't have caps on them uh with stems in the center so when you pull them apart they actually they're called petals but they do feel like shells even on the very on the on the bottom of them um there there are ridges like in a seashell this is right. very cool and really delicious oh oh um <laughs> When we talk about the family, the history of these, the, the naming, um, tell us, walk us through what, what you do know and then how the planting, everything that you had to do to set these up. How, does, how do they work? How do they flourish? Well, I, I, I don't know how they grow in, in, in the wild. I would um, with the kit, it came with, um, I gather it was uh, like a form of, of growth um, uh, material. Um, soils, mm -hmm. I, I gather, or something like that. Uh, it came in a box, and the the mushrooms, um, the, the the little starters were in there, right inside. And um, you had to cut the the, uh, the the box and the the heavy plastic which held the um, which ha held this mixture. Um, it, it actually turned out to be a big block of. So I just put it into the compost, and mm -hmm. and then the mushrooms take um, their nourishment from that, um, and, and as they grow. So it, it's it's a very interesting. Um, it, it is a kit. Uh, that, but so do you leave it, it, it in its fun. box, Suze? Like in that kit, do you basically all you're doing, opening it, putting it the place you want it, whatever directions in the way of light and and so on. And st yes. starting from there, because you have its nourishment and everything in there. Yes, it's it, it's wow. a kit, and it's 
it's, it, yeah. it was just a very it was a very fun and and cool project to do. So uh, yeah, I'm very nice and and then uh, you know we served it with uh, we cooked it up with a lot of butter and garlic. I was just going to say a splash of white wine and a twist of uh, of pepper and then um, you know put it over top of wilted greens. It was they were absolutely delicious. I've actually never eaten oyster mushrooms before. I've I've uh. actually seen them in the grocery store, but never. Um, and never picked them up uh, to, to cook them. So now I've grown them, and now I've cooked them. And I will probably do it again. So how much, Susan? Is the... what... sorry, Brock. I was just curious how many were available. Like with, with this kit and what you did, I'm really curious of how this turns out to, to when the way of harvesting and feeding. Well, uh, I, I actually um, we served um, we served it up and and it. It was a full meal for us, uh, for the two of us, my husband and I. Nice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it actually was a lot. I would suspect that... I guess so. We know how much Peter it. can eat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, there was, and, and they're, they're, they're thick. They're, they're, um, the, the petals on, on this, they're very, very thick um, and, and, and large, very large. So oh, um, it, it was a really, really delicious dinner. And uh, as I said, oh. fun. It was fun. I would do it again, and I would try other mushrooms too. I, I know that there's all sorts of different kinds and different ways of growing them. I've actually become very interested in it. So uh, that's it's it's nice. They're love. I I love eating them too. So there you go. <laughs> I have to imagine, Susan, that one of the most gratifying, satisfying things is that you grow something in your own garden and then you serve it to yourself for dinner. Is that, would I be right in saying that? Oh, absolutely. And anyone who has grown anything, you know, even if it's just one tomato, like one small tomato plant in a pot or some chives, there's nothing better than going and getting those and adding them um, to to your dinner uh, or, you know, to a snack or what, you know, what, what you, whatever you want to use them for. Um, it's, it's really, it's a really nice thing. And I, I think that's, um, you know, if you can do that, uh, even, you know, a little pot of parsley to, uh, you know, to add to your meals or sprinkle on something or, as I say, chives, anything like that. A little tomato plant, tomatoes, the small tomato plants grow very nicely indoors. Uh, so it's, it's, it is nice. It's a, it's a nice feeling. You know, you, you grew this and, uh, yeah, and now you can enjoy it. And, and can you grow these year-round? Like, when I say that, you've got this batch, you've eaten them, could you have had started another one, another kit, a month later, a month later? Is there a period of time that these guys kind of don't do as well through the year, or because it's indoors, it doesn't matter? I think because it's indoors, it doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I will try it again. I, I will start another one in the next couple of weeks and uh, see how see how we do. Um, and uh, of course, the light will be different. Uh, mm-hmm. It does tell you what type of light to put them in. And I would think that all mushrooms are different. So um, some mushrooms will need light. Some won't need light. This one needed no. Um, it it just needed a 
a bright area, no, no actual real light. So I put it on a shelf in my kitchen. I just put it up on the shelf in my kitchen. I put it on a cookie tray with foil so that when I sprayed it, I wouldn't be um, ruining the shelf um, because you do have to spray them quite a bit to keep them wet as they start growing. Uh, you, you start with the, uh, the actual material that it's growing in, and you just spray that, and then all of a sudden the, the mushrooms start growing, and they get larger and larger and larger until finally you can harvest them. So it, was, um, it, was, it was a good project, fun and delicious. And the next thing you're going to tell us about is something that bloomed in your garden for the first time ever. Yes. It, this is a succulent, and I have several of these. Um, and, and it's actually called the Mexican stone crop um, succulent. And they... They don't need a tremendous amount of care. I think probably because I ignore them most of the time. I I do take care of them, but I don't do a lot for them. <laughs> this this bloomed, and I I was actually in looking at them the one day, and there was all these flowers. I was very excited. So it's it, it is the first time that actually one of these has bloomed. I don't know whether it's because of the plant. Um, the age of the plant, I think it's about three years old, or whether it's because we've had a lot of warm weather, not so much sunshine, but uh, a lot of warm weather, and it is in a south window, and it it doesn't need a lot of moisture, so um, the conditions were absolutely perfect for it. It is also a good plant to put out into your garden if you have an, an area where it's very sunny, uh, you really need something that is drought-proof because this is, that's why it's called stone crop. It could probably grow amongst a lot of stones and, um, and very dry soil. So if you have an area like that um, and, and you just want to put something in there that is going to be green um, all, all summer and uh, a little bit showy, then, uh, yeah, it, it's a good plant to put out, outdoors. It cannot take cold. So the temperatures at night ha- cannot go below seventy. It is um, it, it is from uh, the, you know, from Mexico, so it, it takes a lot of dry, a lot of heat. But uh, if you can get that out into the garden, I've put some of mine out um, just just to fill in spots where there was you know no greens or, or something would not grow um, because of the you know, the, the dry conditions, windy conditions, very, very hot conditions uh, near a wall. Uh, so, it, 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 and it does very well there. But this is the first time I've ever had one blue. So, yeah, nice. That's awesome. I'm, it must be. Yeah, so- like, I mean, like, well, especially you're making attempts to get it and nothing happens. <laughs> like, it just doesn't work out. And then all of a sudden, and Sue, we can sit here and say, oh, it's the crazy environment, the weather, the way the world's going to, and all of a sudden, voila, there it is. Yeah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But and I, it's a nice surprise. It's it's lovely mm-hmm. when something blooms in February um, on, on your windowsill. It's very nice. Yeah, it's, it, it's funny, Sue, because, as you said, the first time, the rugged ruggedness of it that you can like literally like just ignore it. You have done that with it, and and it just and it, you listen to the description you gave of it. You think, well, how hard is it to make this stuff kind of 
bloom or come out, but yet it has its stubbornness. And I think the one qualification, of course, is that temperature. Um, but when you're dealing with inside, it's a, it's a whole different story because you shouldn't have that to worry about. But it's very interesting on the fussiness of whatever made this work, whatever little magic touch. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The plant was ready to bloom, and there we are. It's it's there. It's yeah. gorgeous. So it'll go outside now, right? You, you will put some more outside? Um, yes, in, um, but not until June. This, this, right. is, this is a very heat-loving plant, so, you know, I, I would be very careful, even towards the end of June. But it does like... It does like July weather. It wouldn't have liked last year's July weather because it wasn't so mm. warm last July. But, um, it, you know, we had a cooler July than usual. So, it, yeah, you, you do have, have to listen to the weather. And uh, then, you know, it, it, uh, it will do well out in the garden if we have um, hot and dry weather. It, it does very do well plant, in that condition. Do you put, like, now that you've got this success with it, if you get more, will you plant in the same place next year because this won't come up on its own over the winter it, it it'll die right off yes it's it's an it, yes if you can't leave it out i usually mm-hmm. put them in large pots or in okay. window boxes and uh and then i can um easily trans uh transplant them, back out. bring them back indoors yeah mm-hmm. yes yes mm-hmm. so very interesting that and i think <clears throat> plants overall have have a, a moment where they're just like what kind of weather are we in right now? And I think that just goes along with the weather we're having, as we talked about. So very, very yes, cool. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. it gives you that moment of spring for sure. Susan, thank you so much. As always, you always bring great stuff to us, and we'll talk to you next Friday. Bye. Susan joins us every Friday at this time for gardening discussions. You see how excited she was over those oysters, the uh Mushrooms, excuse me. Uh, I, I just, it, like your question, it's just so spot on, Brock, about how that must feel. You know, you, you're able to, I remember my family would be like that with rhubarb. If we'd go get people's rhubarb because my mom would give tomatoes to people, we'd get rhubarb from people. Like it was that real exchange and boy, how powerful. We're going to take a break and switch gears. And when we return on the other side of the break, Apple has made an AI tool that lets you make edits by describing them. How, what, what? John Dealer, he'll be here in a few moments to tell us all about it on our app update. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. I felt like I didn't know when Sue was describing the kit Brock in our last segment, you know, and how to set that up and everything. I was kind of like, so do you just leave them to grow in the kit or do you have to move? You know, it was really educational that way. But the one thing I discovered is I don't think I'd have the patience she would to wait Another, you know, if I planted now, another six weeks before I could eat, if I enjoyed those oyster mushrooms as as she and her husband did, that would really make me like, wow, I'd have to run simultaneously staggered a bunch of these kits if I really enjoyed that to get enough. And I know some people would probably say, well, that's a lot of work just for one real meal, like you're waiting all that time. But as you could hear in Sue's voice, it was well worth it, eh? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's very cool when you consider that 
you know, it just grows in the kit that it comes in and you don't really you just put it where you want it. And there we go. It just goes yeah. on. And that's the beautiful thing about gardening. Yeah, and especially when everything's set and it should just go like that. Not a problem. And and really you get that benefit and enjoyment. Just do your your spritzing, as she was saying. And and six weeks later, there you go. Folks, it's time for our app update. So let's welcome in as we check in with John Beeler. Hi, I'm John Beeler, technology expert from Vancouver. Join me on Kelly and Ramia where I share the latest app, mobile, and tech news. Everything from accessibility and product launches to privacy and security. We'll cover the gamut. Well, and today we're doing that, going all over the place. John's got some great selections for us. Welcome back, John. And I guess we're going to start with DuckDuckGo's browser adds encryption, uh, privacy-minded sensing, and backup. Wow, this is this is fantastic. Yeah, we've talked about DuckDuckGo before. Uh, it's very yeah. privacy-focused uh, as far as hiding your browser information uh, from, you know, advertisers and, and the like. And uh, nothing's being sold. You're, you're not seeing any ads, those kinds of things. Um, but they've just added a new feature, I think, that's really cool. Um, when you have Chrome, for example, on your desktop and, say, on your phone, you invariably would want to sync across those devices so you don't have to have a, a second set of bookmarks and uh, your history and all that type of stuff. And so you would typically log into that, uh, that your Chrome account and log into both devices with that same Chrome account. And then essentially Google will sort of connect the dots for you. The problem with that is from a privacy perspective is that Google has said that they're anonymizing your information and uh, basically using it for lots of different reasons. Um, DuckDuckGo, though, has come up with a very clever workaround uh, for this problem. And so you can have DuckDuckGo installed on multiple devices. You don't need an account. You don't need to log into anything. You literally just use QR codes that will mm. tell the other device to copy from the other one and sync across the internet in an encrypted format. Uh, DuckDuckGo has said that they don't see anything. Uh, they It's all encrypted. It's completely anonymous. Uh, it's not used for any other purpose, and nothing can see it. No other machine right. or app can see it. So I think that's a really cool way of uh, sort of protecting your privacy uh, 100%, but also giving you that, 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 that convenience and flexibility of being across multiple devices with the same browser. Where do you see or who do you see taking from this themselves? Is there a, a, a reason that some of the others may not want to do a do you know set theirs up or make alterations for this kind of convenience um i mean i i'm, I'm assuming we're seeing it in some other places in different ways like you said but do you think this is a model of what we're going to see go forward i would like to think that but i think most companies have uh the bottom line in mind so uh they're probably not going to enable that functionality i could see a company like apple maybe uh, offering that kind of functionality, but they already kind of have that feature with uh, your Apple ID, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, they, yeah. They've claimed that they're not selling that information. They can't see it. It's all encrypted. Uh, it's the same type of thing. But the fact that Google has literally admitted that they're using your anonymized data uh, for lots of different reasons is a little bit concerning. Um, and this basically should put most people's minds to rest. Yeah. I, when you think about 
it, how huge that business alone is for them to sell that kind of information for to advertisers to whomever and I don't even want to start thinking who the heck would want all that other than advertisers I don't know if we want to know probably not no okay John judge rejects most chat GPT copyright claims from book authors yeah this is a very important uh point in the whole AI uh, training mm. model uh, setup, because a lot of authors and uh, intellectual property owners are concerned that their material is being used to train these AI models, uh, and that when you ask it to write you a book or write me a joke or something like that, you're being basically uh, unintentionally um, copying someone else's work. Now. What we do know from how these language models work is that they're inspired by, but not necessarily verbatim, uh, repurposing a joke that Sarah Silverman would have wrote in one of her books. And that was one of the claims is that this is straight up copyright theft. And the judge basically said they didn't have a good enough case to prove this because one of the things that ChatGPT is not doing is it's not recreating that work of art in book form for one thing, right? Uh, which which is a little, you know, a little syntaxy thing. But essentially, if I have the ability to read a book that I would have normally had to pay for, that's a different kind of angle for that. But I think this is just really interesting that they've rejected all but one of the claims, uh, other than straight up copyright, like copying the text that's mm -hmm. being used in the in the language models. Um, and OpenAI has uh, said that they're planning to get that defeated very soon as well, because I guess they have evidence to prove that that is not the case. Um, they haven't shared that yet, but uh, it's just a really interesting sort of um, uh, back and forth cat and mouse game with intellectual property owners and these large language model systems that are creating AI for these purposes. And we're starting to see it almost everywhere now, as we've talked yeah. about many times on this program. Uh, and uh, the fact that there is some information in there that might seem like it comes from a specific type of source, or even things when you ask it to, you know, write me a joke in the style of, uh, you have the, the, these models have all of this information to sort of draw upon. It seems inevitable that sometimes something would come out that would be directly linked back to a specific individual that would have created it. But it's also really difficult to prove. It's almost I like they treat it. Oh, go ahead, bro. I guess here the, the, the essence is in order to have a copyright claim, you better have your I's dotted and your T's crossed because you can have the essence of something, but it has to be really specific. So I guess ultimately, John, you're not really surprised that most of these were denied, I gather. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about this because I think it this is definitely a very complicated matter. Um, it just depends on how people are utilizing the outputs from these AI tools. Um, if I was to write a comedy book using AI and then publish it, and then it turns out that large chunks of it are directly derived from someone else's work, that would be problematic, of course. Um, and, and people certainly are writing books using AI or having AI write books for them and selling them. Uh, everything from how-to and self-help and those types of things to actual fiction. So it's just really interesting to see how people are using this, but also how people can protect, 
protect themselves for any work that they do legitimately create on their own without the help of AI uh, and prevent that from being part of this system. Uh, the other mm -hmm. question I would have too for some of these books is how did they get into the language models in the first place? Was it because they made these available as eBooks that were publicly scrapable? Or was it something that was more nefarious in the sense that a pirated copy of this book got into a public archive and got pulled up in, in that way? So there's lots of different little nuances to this and it's a very complex um, situation for the lawyers and the judges to sort out, um, but it's fascinating to watch from the sidelines. Yeah, you wonder on what knowledge the judges weighing in on the case have, but they almost treat it just as if somebody's asking a smart speaker a question and pulling the information up from Wikipedia and just saying, well, that's available. That's like saying that they're stealing that information for whatever their purpose is. It's so right now hanging on that edge of, well, but the information is there. But like you just pointed out, the key is this case. How is it there? Where did it come from? Um, and, and I have to question, you know, when a judge goes down a slippery slope like this or opens the door for it, you know, judge, do you know kind of what you're doing? Do you understand it? And, and maybe no one really does yet. Well, and we, we've seen this with technology companies going before Congress in the U.S., where you can clearly tell that the politicians don't have a clue about the technology yes. they're talking about. And some, you know, misinformation or some other misunderstanding of the technology has led them to have this big, uh, you know, investigation into some of these technology pieces uh, of the puzzle. And uh, it's very difficult to argue against something you don't understand. Uh, and AI is still very much in that realm for a lot of people. So it's really hard to say. And under, even, even the creators of these AI tools don't fully mm -hmm. understand how AI works sometimes, too. So... Yeah. And we're going to see a lot of times as they mess around with it and somebody says, oh, wow, I didn't realize it would figure that out or it would draw that conclusion or isn't that a surprise? I think AI is going to be that one one thing where we hear about a lot of these things that people, my God, I didn't know it could do that. Well, it's because you're creating in such a way and it's developing and teaching on its own in such a way that you're like, whoa, 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 it's speeding ahead of me. Um Apple made an AI image tool that lets you make, make edits by simply describing them. How does this work, John? Fantastic. Again, this is just the, the continuing evolution of AI at warp speed. Um, Apple has um, released a research paper about this new model. They call it the, the MGIE model, uh, which they've worked on with the University of California, Santa Barbara. And essentially, you tell it what you want to do. Instead of using Photoshop and using a mouse or a trackpad to actually manipulate uh, an image, you just say, well, here's a picture of some pizza, make it look more healthy and it'll add vegetables to your pizza. You know, those types of oh. things. Being able to tell it to, you know, remove uh, someone from the background, again, not having to like highlight them and identify them and things like that. Just say like, remove the woman in the background of this photo and, and they can do that. But you can also tell it to do things like very simply and very uh, plain language in a very plain language way. Like, uh, for example, if you had a photo of a laptop with a screen on it and you wanted to make it look more interesting for, say, your website or whatever, you could say, change the, uh, let the laptop have a green web page on it. And it would just find a green web page and put that and replace the image that's on the laptop. You don't have to do anything. You just talk to it like a normal person. Just like if you were talking to a designer, you would say, yeah. well, make this 
sunnier, make the blue sky bluer, or you know those types of things. You can have that conversation, uh, literally in a in a chat box with this image editing tool. Man, wow! Anything you see potentially, and we always know there's some way somebody's going to use something. Um, maybe this is more real that because it just sounds so powerful, so unbelievable. And other than hey, well this is take away jobs. And again, we're, I'm sure at this point, there's a level of simplicity that you have to have within the pictures and using certain, certain dialogue as you speak, maybe not too specific, but specific enough. Yeah, I, I think there's a number of issues with this particular type of uh, editing. Generally, these types of tools are very low resolution. So they're not going to be replacing, you know, high end graphic designer type work at this point, but you can see where it's going. And, and, you know, the, the, the struggle that I have with these tools is it's really cool. It's really amazing that, you know, this democratizes technology to a lot more people that would normally have to hire somebody. Um, mm -hmm. But then also if I'm that person that was being hired, I'm no longer getting those jobs. Um, yeah. So I need to look for new work. <laughs> so there's, there's this uh, tug of war that's happening. Uh, I think for a lot of people when they struggle with how amazing these tools are, but also the limitations of them still are, uh, you know, it's still very rudimentary and very basic at this point, like you mentioned. It's still not, yeah. you're not getting it to create, you know, uh, a work of art, although you can get some pretty creative stuff out of some of these AI tools, but being able to manipulate it and and just describing it in in common language, that's groundbreaking in a lot of ways, just in, in the, you know, computer to human interaction uh, space alone, being able to describe something and that the computer understands in that scope of that image, there is something that needs to be changed and change it in a certain way to get a desired result. As we've seen with a lot of these tools, sometimes when you're describing stuff, you have to be very specific and very you know, implicit about what you're actually saying. So a lot of times it's all about the prompt engineering, as mm, they call it. Right. Basically the syntax that you're using, the computer has to understand the words that you're using to say that's the desired result. But that's the interesting thing yeah. with these tools, as we've said before, is you can continue to have a conversation and, and you start off with, say, maybe the wrong result, but then you can say, well, hey, can you fix this? Can you refine that? Can you do this? Can you do that? And you, you have this continuing conversation. It's not just a one and done uh, expression that you ask it to do something and then you have to start all over again. Um, you get to refine or you can revert back to earlier versions, those types of things. Um, mm. As far as you know, the 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 negative stuff, um, as you mentioned, Kelly, people are going to use this to change what these things look like uh, for for whatever political or personal gain, whatever you know, even just for memes, um, those kinds of things. That's not going to stop. Um, what is interesting though is a lot of companies that are making these tools are embedding invisible watermarks so that it can be detected right. as AI manipulated image, which I think will go yeah. a long way to help some of this yeah. stuff. For sure, for sure. John, you know we're out of time. I better stop asking questions because the head's full of curiosity about it. We'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you, sir. John Beeler joining us. We do the app update every Friday right here on the program. Brock and I will return in a second. And in a moment, Uber is at it again, making some head-scratching decisions. Beth Deer, she's here. She'll tell us more about that on The Buzz. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv.
Man, you got to do it, folks. If there's content from AMI you're looking for, you, the one-stop shop is over at AMI+. Plus. You've seen it advertised. You heard us talk about it here on the program numerous times with different contributors and staff. And when we, we throw to something, go to amiplus.ca. This is the place where it's happening, where all that content is available to you. And so much of it, whether it's uh, uh, programs from the past, present shows, documentaries, or some of our digital shorts and things like that, all over the place. Hey, there's even stuff from our program up there. So check it out at amiplus.ca. Brock Richardson's hanging out with me today. Kelly McDonald here. Wednesday through Friday, we get a chance to uh, sit down with Beth and flip through some articles around the world. So that's what we're going to do. And we never know where she's going to go. Beth, hello. How are you? I am great, thank you. How are you guys? Pretty well. Pretty well. Where are we starting Awesome, today? awesome. So as Kelly teased earlier, we're going to talk about Uber. I feel like... <laughs> I feel like I always talk about Uber, normally about the issues with uh, service dog denials. <laughs> it's tend to happen all the time, but this is a different topic. So different Uber type drivers of denial. planned, yeah, kind of. Um, so Uber drivers planned a Valentine's Day strike across Canada. Thousands of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers um, took a break from their job on Valentine's Day as part of a global protest over pay and benefits. The one-day strike happened in countries like US, the UK, and Canada. Uh, in this country, the demonstration kind of like points were Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. Um, in a report that was released on Monday, they said that the organization estimates an, an Uber driver in Toronto earns $6.37 per hour after expenses. Below Ontario's minimum wage of $16.55. The report also said that findings align with recent estimates of drivers' hourly earnings in California of $6.20 an hour and in Seattle, a little bit higher, with $9.63 an hour. Um, Uber has said that the uh, median earning of a Toronto driver is about $33.35 five cents uh per engaged hour which i feel like they may be using that term kind of loosely i feel like that might be kind of collectively over a shift you know the time that you know makes obviously like makes up an hour yeah kind of like 33 dollars but yeah. that yeah but like that technically could have been over the span of like three or four hours if you know what i mean yeah. um and vancouver is earning about 24 uh 38 per session and this is what people take home in the sense of what those other numbers you quoted the six the nine and so on yes. i think that the viewpoint that's what they're walking away with and, and which is scary when you know they're telling you well you tip this 15 to 25 40 percent whatever it is yeah so earlier this month, Lyft said it began guaranteeing that drivers will make at least 70% of their fares each week. Um, and it lays out its fees more clearly for drivers in like this new earning app or like statement thing. Um, these types of trips have rarely had any impact. Oh, sorry. These types of 
like protests have rarely had any impact on trips, prices, or driver availability, Uber said in the statement. That's because the vast majority of drivers are satisfied. It's unclear when exactly the strikes will take place. Obviously, this is when I initially got the article. I did try and do some more digging this morning to kind of see if anything came of the strike because obviously the strikes on wednesday it's now friday um mm-hmm. i personally couldn't really find anything i did find one thing kind of saying that uber is on the same page as lyft where they're like going to try and start giving their employees more of obviously the money that they are kind of entitled to um i but do we know this included the uber of- eats people like, like, was well, this? Well, that's kind of what I was facets? gonna go to. Was like they are all encompassing, if that makes sense. So that day mm-hmm. when um, Rami was getting the Uber and I was stood with her with Patronus, I wasn't even getting in the car, and they like drove away from us. Um, yeah. That day when we called to be like, "Hey, like your driver just ditched us." Um, it was actually like an Uber Eats line. Like the guy was like, hey, like how can I help with your order? And we were like, uh, we didn't order food. Like this is about a service dog denial. And he was like, oh, right. Okay, sorry. Um, Which is kind of funny because that number was given to me by someone at Guide Dogs who was like, hey, next time you get denied by an Uber, like try this line. This is meant to be the service dog denial line. Um, Right. But and I've heard of it. We talked about that line to... on the show quite a long time ago that there was this mm-hmm. number. We thought it was great, but I, I don't know of anyone trying it. Maybe some of our listeners out there did. I remember that because it, it's hard to conceive when you hear these numbers. Is there a mix up? Are we hearing the number from Uber or Lyft being what someone's making in total, including their taxes, everything like that for the company, for yeah. what the, they bring in? Or how does, you know, Fred Smith? Uh, you know, in his cab, or, or, you know, getting that money, how do we get it down to the $6? But then there's all the costs that using your vehicle, you're going to, Absolutely. when you put in insurance, gas, anything else, dings, bangs, cleaning up after people. Well, and I, and I mean, I think the thing is that the drivers look at the cost of the fare and then they go, well, this is how much the company's making. How come I'm only making this? But to your point, point exactly there's so many other costs that go along with that and it's just it becomes convoluted and i think you know as for the you know the line that you were referring to about the confusion between uber eats and and uh you know a a passenger service that just goes to show how confusing the system is even for the people who literally work the job because even in that moment it's like it's like oh can I help you with your order? And you go, I didn't order anything. And they go, oh, so even that tells me the system is not streamlined enough to be able to make the worker understand what the heck they're doing. And it's not entirely the worker's fault. It's yeah. just the system. No, absolutely. And I find this really interesting because when I first moved to Canada, um, that was in 2017. And Cody at the time was going to university. Um, He had just started his company. They weren't making very much money, but I obviously wasn't able to work yet. So we were living very much off of like what he made. And that was around the time when Skip the Dishes became popular. And at that point in time, we were living in Lethbridge. So he started driving Skip the Dishes and we'd kind of like 
be a team. I would always put up the directions for him. He'd always like run in, grab the food, and then like would deliver it. And it was kind of this like little side gig we did. And at the time, we actually made a really decent amount of money. And I think it was just because it was only just taking off and they didn't necessarily like have the amount of drivers that Uber and Skip the Dishes and DoorDash and all these How kind of place, like Beth? places have You guys are now. doing it in a what what seems to me, and this is the thing that I always thought, if I could see, my God, I'd pick this up doing Uber Eats or or Uber at nighttime. What a way to, I, I mean, when it first came out, there were things like insurance that made me, ooh, balk at it. But the idea of doing it, having a vehicle, going out and doing it, seemed sensible to me. But if you note, all these places for these protests are cities, and there's got to be a money loss there just navigating through traffic, sinning in traffic. So I, I wonder, versus folks like yourself, using a place that's it's pretty consistent the traffic yeah oh god cows i don't know i just think this might be a very unpopular opinion and it might sound kind of cold-hearted but my kind of stance on this whole like they're not getting paid the amount they should be is this i feel like it's gonna sound so cruel but i'm kind of just like if if you don't like it like like it or lump it like you either just get on with mm -hmm. it crack on you're here. protest totally. if you yeah. really like well and that's like what some people would argue with it being the, war, the gig economy you're given that chance to do it uh this is why you have your reasons for how come you're doing it whether mm -hmm. it's to augment another job or hard to find another job full-time job absolutely whatever like, it I'm, might be i'm not saying like it's going to be easy to find another job but if it's between being in a job where you don't get paid enough and you aren't happy and satisfied versus, you know, having to really grind to actually find a job that pays you what you think you're worth. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you don't want to like, see Uber or anybody abuse to... anyone. And, and, but, and do we go back to a point where because of the model, they can do that where some people like yourselves will say, I'm sorry, maybe it was years ago, but it wasn't like that when they started. Maybe as they've gotten bigger, mm -hmm. they've become more corrupt, disrespectful, maybe. But I bet you there are a certain lot of people out there who are agreeing with you guys and, and agreeing with people maybe in other circumstances in other cities. It, I, I It's so hard to contextualize for me because I can't do it. Don't know. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, don't get me wrong, you guys. Like, I was not driving <laughs> when we were delivering skip the dishes to people. It was very much a team effort. I was. Well, I was testing their food Co out, making Cody, sure it was hot and Cody it tasted them, all right. <laughs> Kelly, I, Kelly, I do have a confession. Uh -oh. I do have a confession. <laughs> when when they first started, um, they. I don't know, there was a lot of like bag fries and stuff like that. And what happens is, or at least at the beginning, you buy your own bags, like they're brand new, like they come packaged. And uh, yeah, if fries fell out, Beth definitely ate them. Oops. And there was, <laughs> there was one time where our car overheated. So we contacted Skip the Dishes and we were like, hey, like we can't get we're stuck. to deliver this food to this person. And it was five guys, and there was so much of it. They were like, that's fine. Like, we've got someone else to come and pick up uh, the same order again. So they sent us home, and we had, like, five burgers and, like, ten hot dogs. <laughs> and, like, amazing, all this food. Amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> 
I would be right there with you on the fries. I would call those bonus fries, Beth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Like, they're just, it's a tip. <laughs> All yeah, <exactly>. you guys. <laughs> Thank you so much, Beth. And uh, always great stuff. And we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Join us for the next Buzz on Wednesday of next week. And if you'll join us after the break, here's what's ahead, folks, on the program. Let's get the conversation recaps. We'll comment on some segments from the past week on Cut for Time. And on the chatty bookshelf today, Ryan Huey is joined by producer and host of Uncharted podcast, Alan Cross. Up next, however, there's a new play-by-play voice for the Toronto Blue Jays. And, folks, there's a unique connection. That guy over there, Brock Richardson, will give us an update. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. week here on the program. Thanks for being back with us as we swing open the gateway to your weekend. This is hour two. Brock Richardson joining me on the show. Also, Brock, I got to give a big thanks to Grant Hardy for filling in through the week as Ramya has been off uh, with illness. We we hope for her back as soon as possible. And we're glad that you're here with us and riding along and the guys have been a lot of fun. So very much appreciate having, uh, having the backup and the fill-ins uh, this week. We've had a good time on the program. A lot more ahead before we finish with hour two. Let's talk sports with the man himself, Brock Richardson, for our weekly sports report. I'm Brock Richardson, and I love sports. As a former pro athlete, I bring you the sports angle beyond the headlines, plus parasport news and analysis. We kick things off always with you, pal, with your leadoff item. What is it today? Yeah, this is a really, really cool leadoff item. It's someone that I know you've had. Well, the connection is that you've had them on your program and I've had them on the program. And that's to tell you that Ben Shulman is going to be the new radio voice for the fan 590. And if you recognize the last name Shulman, that's because his father is Dan Shulman. And I think that Ben is a tremendous talent and well-deserved with this role, but Kelly, honestly, I don't know that anyone will ever be able to hold the candles to the one and only Jerry Howarth. And I remember uh, you uh, told me early on in in our relationship, as you're my mentor, who is what is well documented on this program, and you said that Jerry was one of your mentors in some way. And I know that he was part of your first uh, episode. He was the first guest what was that like for you and if you have any comments relating to ben as well Uh, thanks for bringing this up brock appreciate you mentioning it because i can always i can never find enough ways to thank jerry howard for making himself available to me um to mentor to just be able to ask questions still do email him hey jerry what do you think um it, it was really wonderful i was saying to brock before the show going to spring training with the toronto blue jays was tremendous um did that one year we had the the opportunity uh dave brown he had the opportunity of doing it well uh as well but 
getting access and having those conversations with Jerry Howarth, and I think one of the first times I utilized Jerry was to do some voice work for a play that I had written and had him involved. Since then, he had been just so great to mentor, to talk, whether I was at Rogers Center or out there at spring training. Um, definitely knew his baseball, but it's the class Jerry brought to everything, whether it's talking baseball, talking something from the news, um, speaking of his 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 late broadcast partner Tom Cheek, there are just so many different things that made you love this man. And for 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 me, one of them being our first guest here when we launched the show in October on October 31st, 2016, he was there uh, and it made himself available to be our first guest and never misses a beat in conversation. Now Ben Showman. I like Ben's work. I like the fact that after they finished, uh, he finished with the uh, World uh, Basketball um, Tournament uh, for the ladies, uh, they make this announcement. I mean, many of us believe Ben was going to be getting this job um, when the other Ben was let go and felt that, hey, this is going to be a good thing and interested to see how how it you know gets navigated. We know the tremendous work that his father does for television, his work in basketball for ESPN, and, and even here uh, covering Canada basketball. So the, certainly the apple does not fall far from the tree. So congratulations to uh, Ben Showman. Yeah, and I, I mean, I just want people to recognize out there that Ben is his own individual. Uh, you're obviously going to compare Ben to Dan. You're going to see some similarities. I heard them when we watched the uh, women's, you know, that tournament that they just had to qualify for the Olympics. There are tendencies, but I think the important piece in all this, Kelly, is to recognize he is his own person and should be known that way. And I think his father would, would want that as well. I know sometimes the media and the public doesn't always look at it that way, but I, for one, hope that uh, that this is able to happen. And before well, we move on, for, yeah. for me, that moment uh, when I had the neutral zone was being able to call up Dan Shulman because he wanted to uh, to speak about the neutral zone a little bit. And I even caught myself going, am I speaking to Dan Shulman right now? Like someone that I, <laughs> you know, listen to and watch. And so I'm right there with you in, in regards to Jerry Howard. And they're just such wonderful people. I think. Well, yeah, and I got to add too. I mean, uh, Dan Showman, even at one time when we had volunteers, did, did a short turn volunteering for AMI uh, years ago, and it was just those wonderful gifts of generosity that I think you see through through the family. But we will also see this, Brock. There's other father and sons out there uh, have done this. The Bucks, I'm, I'm thinking of right off the bat, and and others that are doing mm -hmm. you know baseball or football that sons have learned so much from from the dads. Okay, sir, let's roll into some history being made in baseball by the Oakland Athletics involving them. Tell us more. Yes, so we learned uh, this week that uh, Jenny Carboner would be the first lead woman uh, broadcaster for the play-by-play. -play. Uh, she's going to be taking over the Oakland Athletics and doing that. So that's great news to hear. Yeah, that is really tremendous. Brock, we're loving these moves, aren't we, when we see this in basketball uh, whether it's officials, whether it's coaching. Um, I mean, we know how much the women's sport of basketball is really picking up, but we're also seeing the credibility and respect given to so many other places. People are saying, we want the best person in the job. It's no longer, we need the best guy doing this. Mm -mm. And that's the impact here that you see is that you want to, 
you know, believes that Jenny is going to do a great job. You know, I think of Aaron Andrews, sideline reporter for the NFL. To me, she was the pioneer of the beginning of this, at least for me personally. And I, and I think, you know, uh, to double down on this, the Oakland Athletics also have a female public address announcer. So yep. they're, they're also saying, look, we're going to, we're going to, continue with the female push and we're going to we're going to put somebody in in the booth and they're really believing in the talent that exists and it's not just a oh this is a woman so this is what we should do it's a we believe in your talent and we're going to show it to you so i think putting aside all the things that happen with the Oakland Athletics and moving and all those things i think this is a tremendous tremendous move from the orga- organization Okay. Any other impact on this for you, or should we move on? Uh, no, I think I covered everything I wanted to there. So let's talk hockey. Edmonton Oilers are really playing well lately. I mean, what a heartbreaker when they, they couldn't get that one win they needed to to break records. Yeah, I mean, I was really rooting for it, and it was really sad to sort of see. I mean, I stayed up late when they were playing the Golden Knights and wanted to Mm -hmm. see it happen. But I almost started to see, Kelly, that, like, they were gripping their sticks a little bit. People were talking all through the streak about, oh, it's not bothering us, we're just playing our game. I really felt like in the third period of that hockey game, I really felt like, okay, I actually think this is grabbing you guys a little bit because athletes are human beings and Mm -hmm. they're going to show that and i think we did as for the success of the uh the the edmonton oilers first and foremost the health of Connor mcdavid begins and ends there if you have yes. Connor mcdavid one of the best players in the world if not the best player in the world currently that makes a big difference and then when the guy goes out to a game this week and pots six assists i mean that's a huge thing if you can get a puck delivered right on your tape right on your stick and say, here it is, deliver it, that makes a real big difference. So to me, mm-hmm. it starts and ends with Connor McDavid's health and also goaltending. Do you have the goaltending to back it so that you can stop the puck from going in your net? Those are the two big things that I think attributes to uh, to Edmonton's success because they started off horribly at 2-10 and 10, uh, to begin the season, and nobody, myself included, really thought they were going to dig themselves out of it. So Connor McDavid would would you suggest that he is the most consistent player in the NHL uh, when it comes to what he does, what's expected of him? Does he usually arise or, or do you see him fall back? I know this is one of the knocks on and we'll get to other teams in Canada in just a second. Uh other teams where you just yeah, some nights they turn it on, some nights they should just just kind of skate through. Yeah, no, it's it's so true and it's it's just the way it is. I have a friend who has a close connection with uh, the management of the Edmonton Oilers, and I've been told many times that, you know, he eats, sleeps, and breathes hockey. That guy really does exist in the game of hockey, and I think that's part of it. I think sometimes you see athletes try to separate themselves while being in the sport as well, and I think Connor McDavid is the epitome of, like, I'm leading by example both in my words, and he's not that talkative of a guy. So he's going to lead by action versus words. Uh, Is there a Canadian team that you have concerns about in the NHL? Yeah, I do. And it's the Toronto Maple Leafs. I don't don't 
think they're guaranteed a playoff position. I mean, for me to say that, you look at this and you say, well, nobody's guaranteed. But I think the media is sitting here saying, oh, yeah, the Leafs will get in. You know, they'll get a wild card position at least. But then where does that leave you? They have so much trouble with, with um, you know, the way that things are going and people getting suspended, Morgan Riley doing silly things. And it's just really, really troubling to see what's happening with the Toronto Toronto Maple Leafs. And yeah, they got a good win last night against the Philadelphia Flyers. They've won their first two games of the homestand. But I just see so many things where I see too many guys playing for themselves rather than for the team themselves for the team. And I think that's a real, real problem. And yeah, we're just here. And again, I want to elaborate just quickly on Morgan Riley and the fact that he mm, took please, a really yes. dumb, dumb situation where he, he hit an Ottawa Senators player and uh, got, got suspended and five games. That's a really dumb decision to make when you're in the stretch of the playoffs here, when you need your team. And then it, people got sick, Kelly, and you can't control when people get sick, but you can control your actions when the game is out of reach. And I think Morgan Riley just went way too far over the line. Okay. I know there was a lot of discussion appealing, which you got to do that when it comes to whatever you're given when it comes to the punishment and the least we're looking into that and doing what they can. But yeah, you, you got to be, you, you got to remember what you're doing at all times, especially something moving as fast. It, it's a sport too easy to injure someone critically. The most so. that's going to happen is they're going to get rid of one game on his suspension and he can't even go back and play because he's appealing. It's just not that easy to do that. So you bet. Okay. Brock Richardson hits us with the latest in sports. We talk on Fridays to begin our second hour of the program up next, ladies and gentlemen, let's move into the chatty bookshelf. Today, Ryan Huey is going to be joined by producer and the host of Uncharted podcast, Alan Cross. He's with us next here on Kelly and Rumya. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. and I are going to settle back, folks, and we hope you will here on this edition of Kelly and Remy for the next little bit. We have uh, a, a wonderful guest, a wonderful speaker who's going to be joining us for the Chatty Bookshelf today, uh, someone who I've heard do a very on-point uh, discussion at a reunion I was at for my broadcast class. So I'm, I'm going to let the man himself, Ryan Huey, in here and let him get to the introductions today as we bring on the Chatty Bookshelf. An entire library could fit inside your pocket. I'm Ryan Huey. This is the Chatty Bookshelf, where we talk audiobook trends, news, and author interviews. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Kelly and Brock. Uh, thank you uh, again. And uh, just before we begin, I just want to let you know with Valentine's Day, only a couple of days in the rear view of uh, Audible and all of audiobooks.com, wherever you get your ebooks or your audiobooks, have sales on all kinds of romance titles. So for those romance lovers, uh, go out there and, and get them while, while they last and while they're on sale. But now, the most important part, have I got a guest for you. This He is the producer and the host of my one of my favorite podcasts right now called Uncharted, Crime, Murder, and Mayhem in the Music Industry, and it's fantastic. He might be 
most known for, uh, sorry, might might be most known for his um, his radio show called The Ongoing History of New Music. And he's been influential across so many so many radio stations uh, across Canada, and he's been on the air since 1980, and he's not going anywhere. But has he got a story for you? Welcome in, Chatty Bookshelf Lovers, the Mr. Man himself, Alan Cross. How are you, Alan? And thank you for joining us. Welcome. I'm, I'm a huge audiobook consumer. I mean, ridiculously huge. So this is kind of fun. Oh, that's amazing. I, I'm always glad to hear. Maybe I'll have to, you know, we'll have to chat about some recommendations and then I'll bring them here and, and let everyone know. But uh, I'll, obviously, I'm a huge fan of Uncharted. So for the the people of the, the audience out there that might not have uh, tuned in, uh, can you give us maybe 25 second or 30 second? I know it's going to be difficult synopsis of uh, what, what, what uh, you got going on there with uh, Uncharted, the great podcast. Actually, it's it's not that complicated at all. The true crime genre is the biggest in the podcasting world. So I wanted to get a piece of that. So Uncharted, Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry, is all about the intersection of crime, true crime, and also music. So <laughs> the music industry is a very, very swampy place, and a lot of weird things have happened over the decades. And this podcast examines some of the things that have happened and the characters that made it happen and the people that paid the price. I've listened and tuned into every single episode so far, and my favorite is about the Leonard Skinner plane crash. Uh, what was it like, uh, such an, studying such an iconic moment in music history? Uh, how, how did you go about you know, choosing that episode and, and doing uh, all of the research for that? Well, this was brand new, so I started with the things that I knew a little bit more about, and one of the things I, I knew quite a bit about was the Leonard Skinner plane crash in October 1977, because I was around back then, I was a Leonard Skinner fan, and I remembered the reports on television and on radio, and I thought, okay, if, if we're going to do something that involves, I don't know if there's crime involved in that particular one, but there's certainly a lot of mayhem, which made it uh, certainly... Uh, a, a viable topic for the for the program and you know the deeper you get into it the weirder the story becomes i mean here's a, a rock band at the height of their powers who gets on a rickety aircraft uh with a couple of pilots who didn't bother bother to check the fuel levels and um weren't exactly concerned <laughs> concerned about safety on a bunch of different levels and and this this plane goes down in a swamp and a number of people died the pilots and three members of the band and some people in the crew and there were a lot of horrific injuries there and then when people right at found the height out, of them at the yeah. at the height of Leonard Skinner too as well that's uh yeah that's it's, and, it's it's one of my favorites for sure and when when people heard about the plane crash uh, they came out of the the Mississippi uh, hinterlands and 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 basically looted the plane and what was left, including purses and wallets. It's just a crazy story. And there's your crime, right? If you're looking for crime, maybe we're just looking in the wrong places there. But uh, just building on that a little bit more, uh, so all of your episodes uh, are about half an hour to the 45-minute range. And I don't want you to give away any secrets, but uh, you know, including research and producing it and getting it up on podcatchers everywhere. Uh, how, how long does it usually take for you to, to kind of go from nothing to a finished product kind of thing. Well, the 
program comes out every two weeks, and each script is somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 words, which is a lot. Uh, so I would say that the whole thing, each episode takes me uh, 10 or 12 hours, I think. Something along those lines. Wow. Now that doesn't count, that doesn't count the stuff that I'm that I'm gathering, the research that I'm gathering, um, you know, between shows because I'm always looking for information. I'm always looking for topics, and that means you know having to write uh, read a book or to dig into some magazine archives or something like that, which I will do when I have a moment long before I actually start writing the program. And what I tend to do is write the show. And then go back and augment certain parts, add additional information, create additional imagery, that kind of thing. So I, I fill it out after I've written the first draft, and that's what everybody gets to hear. And that kind of, uh, I've, I've had some uh, narrators for audiobooks, some audio performers there, and they said it's about uh, for every hour they have to record, it's about eight hours. So it story checks out there. Um, and in our audience, we might have some young folks or some old folks in, in the audience that uh, really want to get in the podcast or the radio industry. What's one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you started out in uh, 1980, if you can narrow it well, down to one? Well, the issue is that radio has changed a dr dramatically since you know, over the last 44 years. And that's because back in the day, radio was one of the few entertainment choices you had. You had movies, you had television with a limited number of cable channels. You could go to the mall or maybe read a book or a magazine. That that was pretty much it. There was no social media. There were no um, there was no internet. There were uh, video games were something that you paid a quarter for at the arcade that you had to leave the house to play. Um, so radio had a larger share of ear in the early 1980s than it does today. There's so much competition for it. What I can tell you is that radio is still very powerful, very popular, very profitable. It's just not it's just not the same as it was 44 years ago because of the way things changed. Now, would I have changed anything? No. Um, I'm pretty pleased and grateful and lucky for the way things have turned out for me. So I don't know if there is anyone, anything I would tell my younger self to be out to, to look out for simply because um, it is an industry that, that involves some bobbing and weaving. I would have probably learned more about computers sooner than I did. And I would probably have kept a closer eye on the internet when it first popped up in the mid 1990s than I did. I mean, okay. a little bit, but we didn't do it enough. Uh, and I'm speaking as the, the industry as a whole kind of caught us off guard. All right. That, that's a wonderful uh, response. And I hope that uh, others will, will take that to heart and, and go out there and get their podcast on because it, it's wonderful to, to get all of these new ones out there. But uh, as a music lover, uh, you have your your website, the Journal of, of All Musical Things. Uh, am I allowed to ask for any favorites? And instead of, you know, hey, what's your favorite song or band? You know, what about what's your favorite uh, iconic moment in history, if you could choose one? Or what's your favorite era of music, if you could if you could choose? I would say there was a period between 1989 and 1995. That's my favorite, because if you were into alternative music, new music at the time, Every day there was, it seemed that there was a new song, a new 
band, a new album, new scene, new sound that you had to learn everything about. It was an incredibly fertile time. And uh, it was very, very exciting because not only did we have the music coming out, we had things changing in terms of um, popular culture. You know, Lollapalooza came along and Generation X started exerting their influence. And it was just a pretty cool time to be involved in, in, in music. So that's my favorite era. Although I will tell you this, every generation has a biological right to believe that the music of their youth is their greatest, is the greatest music of all time. So for me, that would be growing up in the, in the 1970s and, and in all the music that was coming out back then, because when you are young, you use music as a way to figure out who you are. And once you figure out who you are, you then use music to demonstrate and broadcast to the world who you've become as a human being. And you might choose a different team. You might be a country kid, a pop kid, a goth kid, a punk kid, a metal kid, whatever it is. But this music becomes an essential part of your ID. And um, so with me, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the late 70s that would involve Van Halen and Pink Floyd and Deep Purple and all that kind of stuff that uh, I will still go back to simply because that's that's 14-year-old me, 15-year-old me, 16-year-old me, Um Trying to I think out. we all revisit that, yeah, because I'm the same way, and I must be getting old. And uh, yeah, I, you can't go wrong with any of Van Halen, that's for sure. No, no. Well, you can, you can if it's Sammy Hagar. Sorry, I'm a David Lee Roth guy. Okay, all right, that's good to know. Um, so, you have no shortage of accomplishments and things that we should be celebrating uh, with your your radio shows, your career in radio, your your podcast, the uh, exhibition at the Sci the science center that you helped uh, uh, you know curate and and were hugely influ influential on. But what comes next? What's what's uh, can you give us any insight as to Uncharted or uh, is there anything else well, you got? What kind of other works you got on the go? Uncharted is in the process of being optioned for a TV series, which would be pretty cool. It's still very much in the discussion phase, but uh, that's certainly on the table. There's another program that deals with music history uh, and history period uh, that is also on the table. There is another TV show uh, that deals with artists and their first big hits that is being bandied about by some people on both sides of the Atlantic. But I think the next thing that's going to happen for me is I've been hired tentatively to be the music researcher on a Hollywood feature film that will involve the Kent State Massacre of May of 1970. So, um, Or Dead in it, Ohio, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Yeah. Where it starts. So, uh, yeah, 2024 promises to be a, a, a pretty busy time outside of just doing radio and podcasts, which will continue. Uh, there, there, there's no question. Radio and podcasts are the things that uh, that pay the bills. But right. uh, I'm always looking for, for new and interesting things to do. And people have approached me with these projects. And it's like, you bet. Yeah. Let's giddy up. No, and you know what? I, I could sit here and chat with you. I have so many uh, questions we didn't even get to, but I just really wanted to, we're unfortunately out of time, and I wanted to thank you, and you are now a honored uh, member of the Chatty Bookshelf, uh, we'll call it society, or guest list, and uh, just you're welcome back anytime. If you want to tell people where they can get their hands on, uh, well, Ed, you can get your hands on Uncharted anywhere, 
uh, that you get your podcast from. But uh, if you have handles that you want to follow Alan on, uh, if you want to you know, shout those out, because uh, I know I follow you on on Twitter. Sure, Twitter X, whatever Elon Musk must right. ruin. Yes. Uh, it's at Alan Cross, A-L-A-N-C-R-O-S-S. I have a, uh, my email is alan at alancross.ca. I answer every email myself. There's uh, the Ongoing History of New Music, uh, which is a podcast, Uncharted, we talked about. And uh, I also have a website, a journal of musicalthings.com. And from there, you can get to my Facebook page and Instagram and whatever else I feel I need to do with social media. Well, thank you so much. Everybody check out Uncharted, the podcast. I You won't regret it. I mean, if they're making it into a TV show, then that's uh, that's just like our audiobooks that are made into movies. They don't just choose anything. They, they got something good here. So thank you so much, Alan. I really appreciate the time. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely fantastic, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, Alan Cross, producer and the host of Uncharted Podcast, joining Ryan Huey today on our chatty bookshelf. Absolutely tremendous. Thank you. Go back, check it out via the podcast if you if you have to, but certainly you got a lot of handles there, a lot of great content to enjoy from Alan Cross. Uh, coming up after the break on the program, let's revisit and weigh in on conversations from the past week. We do it. We call it Cut for Time. Beth Deere will join Brock and I, and we'll hit that off for you in two minutes. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. Thanks for being with us, ladies and gentlemen. Checking out everything that we do on our program is real easy to do. I mean, we, we just had Alan Cross on here talking about his handles. Well, you, of course, can find us out on Twitter at uh, Kelly and Rumya. But more importantly, when you want to go back and listen to segments, maybe you missed Alan Cross a few moments ago, a uh, really great chatty bookshelf and uh, lots of good content on our Friday show. Simplest way is the podcast, folks. You can listen to the show in segment form. You can listen to the whole show. We toss on an audio vanity card. Irene, our director today, providing us that one wonderful card. Have some great ones over the past week, so do check them out if you want to catch up. But you find that with the complete Kelly and Rumya podcast experience. Give us a rating and review if you don't mind. But we uh, we would like you to consume the show any way you can, whether it's one of the repeats or via the podcast where we have it uh, sectioned out segment by segment, and you can scour through and pick your favorite segment to listen to. And we're going to kind of get into that, Brock, coming up in this next segment. Yeah, I just want to say as a person who's uh, been involved in this uh, program for a number of years, one of my favorite things to do is record the audio vanity card. I just love to sit and just open up about whatever it is that we're going to talk about or comes to mind. You usually know. what you're no, gonna what I, you're gonna talk about like how long before you hit record? Maybe fifteen seconds. Like it's yeah. literally just yeah, I just sit there and I go, Okay, what's coming to mind? And we and I talk and I really don't know where there's a beginning. Well, I mean I know where there's a beginning, but I don't really know how and when I'm gonna end it and it just kind of yeah, yes, all yes. comes together and it's fun. I, I really enjoy it. So well, uh... I find for myself, Brock, doing um, 
we started doing the vanity cards. And at that point, for the most part, Rum and I would just kind of go and do it a little bit back and forth. But for the most part, I was doing them for a while. And that's the way I did it. I just, I was never sure. And the worst part was if I did get a couple of ideas, usually the second one I'd forget. Or I, by the time I started the record, I thought, no, hold on, what were those ideas? Or the first one that I had that I, oh, I could do that one. And then next day or a couple of days later, do that one. Oh, what was the first one I was going to do? So uh, I know you've certainly said this before, how much you enjoy doing them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm like you. I mean, I would, you would tell me, you know, if I'm filling in for a week, you know, you'd say, can you do, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday? And I'd sit there at the beginning of the week. Okay, let's do this one. Let's do that one. And invariably, I would forget about the third one and just sit there and <laughs> whatever come to mind would come to mind. And that's what I would do. So. <laughs> well, it's always fun. And right now, I, I Fedora's off to the team because so many people have been getting involved. I, I heard a rumor that Grant Hardy might even throw one in next week. So we, we, will, oh. we will see what he does when he has time and what he talks about. We got Agnew back involved in the show, but I got to give him at least another hour or two to, to settle into his job so that I can get him <laughs> to start doing vanities too, right? You know, just once yeah, in a while, but... He was part of the coming up with it process, I think. So it's, it was his idea, definitely. Yeah. The audio vanity cards was his idea, and uh, he just thought it would add a little bit to the show many moons ago. All right, Mr. Yeah. Richardson, we should probably jump into things. It's uh, time to do Cut for Time, which we do at this point uh, every Friday, and I'm going to kick things off and tell you that on Monday, Amy Amanti joined us, and she talked about her newest art exhibit called through my lens, here she is explaining a little bit more. It's a live interactive theater piece. Uh, I'm the solo performer in it, mm -hmm. and it's on my intersection of photography and blindness. And often people say, how, to, how, how do people who are blind or low vision take photographs? So that's what we explore. It's a small, intimate audience experience where I bring somebody out from the audience. They come up on stage and the stage um, is designed with three projector screens. So they're kind of, um, you could reach to the top of them if you extend your hand. So they're like a six foot by, uh, by 10 feet. There's three of them and photographs come up on these while you're sitting immersed in them. The audience is watching and we talk through the photographs and it, it, it's a progression, right? It's a narrative. So it's sort of my story that's narrated, narrated, um, and you are describing things, but it's more than just description. It's not really about description because I ask you to place yourself into the photograph, right? So what do you hear? What do you smell? What other things are happening around you? You know, if you were in this place, what would you be experiencing? Who's inside that place, right? So we combine memory and experience and shared collective um, emotion in the space, and we go to some really interesting places. The classic question you always receive as a person who is visually impaired or blind is, how much can you see? And for me, I've always struggled with pictures. Like if somebody hands me a photo album and says, take a look at this. It's, I, this is from whatever I did. This is from my graduation, my wedding, whatever it is. Um, I always struggle with it because I always felt like I'm missing something. I always felt like I'm missing a piece that everybody else can see that I can't. And when it came to my wedding a couple of years ago, one of the things that my then fiance, now wife, 
really wanted to do was she really wanted to get a picture book and an album that we would cherish for, you know, ever. And I was kind of one of these people that said, mm, I don't really know how much I'm going to get out of the album. I'm going to enjoy taking the pictures with all the people and the the family members that are at the wedding. But I don't know how much I'm going to gain from it. I don't know how much I'm going to experience it. And I've learned recently that what I experience from it is taking the book off of our bookshelf and handing it to somebody that has never seen our wedding book. And the reaction that I get from the people that are viewing it, like that are reliving the day or weren't there and able to live it that way. And I think that's the reaction I get from pictures is from what other people tell me. I don't get a lot from pictures myself, but I certainly enjoy the reaction that others give me. And I know there's one picture in my in my wedding album that it was caught by my niece who said she was going through all the family members and she, she said there's there's mommy, there's daddy, there's Auntie Megan, there's Uncle Brock and Uncle Brock again. And what she meant by Uncle Brock again was there's this image where I have two heads in the same picture. The second head is very, very small and it's Good kind grief. of at the that bottom. you in the morning. <laughs> but nobody knew. And then it's just one of those moments now where we share it with people and it's like, Oh, here's the the second head of Brock, you know, and I'm not upset with the photographer. Of course, it was just it was a misprint and it's fine. It's just one of those stories you can tell. And I and I really enjoy that. But when I first heard of the idea of let's do a, a photo album, it was like, what am I going to gain from this? And I've learned now this is what I gain is other people's reaction to it, Kelly. Kind of like broccoli and cheese, right? When I hear the name and I think the way you were saying now, it's like, what? You know, like that's kind of this crazy two-headed guy. Yeah, okay. But that's awesome. And things happen. Um, first of all, for me, no longer able to, to see pictures. And I've never been able to see them too well. Um, I mean, I remember as a kid uh, climbing up on the couch and looking at pictures that my mom and dad had on the wall. They had one with a beautiful waterfall. All I could really see is the water. Um, when Amy was speaking during the segment and describing the reasons for taking pictures for her, the light, where's this light coming from? It really put me to remembering. And I'm sitting here as she's speaking, and this is you know, something that went right back to my childhood, to any time I could be walking somewhere, uh, sitting outside, or by a window, and that light comes. So I understood what she was saying, but it made me remember standing in the woods and through uh, breaks in the trees, light coming down, and how it would shatter in my eyes, how it, to me, would look like a haze. And I always thought the most fascinating, and I recalled going camping and my dad telling me, though, there's a bunch of birch trees there. We'd talk about the trees. And there being a slope and these trees on this slope and the light coming down. And I would stand there. Couldn't tell you what, what attracted it so much to me. I know it had to do with that light Amy mentioned. I know it had to do with the angle, the body of the trees. It looks so mystic to me. Um, being this little t city city boy, I was you know in Montreal, living in Montreal then, and we go into the United States, and I loved when we'd camp at places with lots of trees, because I love this whole thing. And Amy mentioning it the other day brought so much back because in my mind, 
Amy took pictures for, as she put it, what's there in the background, that fence, that that house, whatever it might be. But in this discussion, no, she's taking it, finding that light coming in, spreading out, or just beaming across her, her sight line. And I thought that was just great. And boy, did it bring me back to a time where I could see myself as a child taking those kinds of pictures. But mostly, Brock, it's the accessibility now that a lot of us have to be able to do that, where we can point our phone and get some kind of access. And more of that's going to come, more of that's going to be on higher-end photography gear as things just become second nature, become Even a part of whatever software you're making for something. Even my phone will now, like if you ask Direct you the, that way. The, the, the magic word of like reading messages and somebody sends you an image and it will say, this is an image of food mm. on a stove. And like, yep. it just gives you that moment of like, I don't necessarily have to pick up my phone and go, what's in this image? If it's a quick response, it's like, here it is. There it is moving on. And I think that's the level of technology we're at now. And we know, as we were talking with John Beeler earlier, how fast that's going to go. We're moving sure. along on to uh, Tuesday on our uh, nutrition conversation with Julia Caranches, another fascinating one. I've got a couple of things on this I'd like to, to share. But let's talk. see what we were talking in that segment about lots of kinds of seeds. Uh, in this clip, Julia explains the difference between some seeds. But if you, if you want to increase protein, hemp seed is the way to go. Hemp seed is going to provide almost double the amount of protein per serving as compared to chia or flax. And so this is wow. one of the differences is that hemp is going to give us more protein, which is really important if you're vegan or vegetarian, because mm -hmm. that's something that you want to place some focus on. So Absolutely. that's a great fact to know. And then if you want to increase your fiber for the day, which we have talked about a lot on the, our segment because fiber is very dear to my heart. Um, <laughs> chia, chia, chia is going to be your best friend. So that's where we have, you know, the chia seeds will really shine because they have a very high soluble fiber content. And then right in the middle is where the flaxseed is going to land. Now the flaxseed, it will give you protein, not as much as the hemp, but still provide some, and it will also give you some fiber. So this is one of those moments where as a, a, a talk show host, we come out with opinions, whether you agree, and we were having this discussion with Beth earlier, whether you agree with us, whether you agree with something we say, we can't sit here and pretend to, well, I have a platform, so I'm correct. That's not the way it works. Julia gave us some beautiful things here. And one of the things Grant pointed out that this worked for him. He was so engaged and, and felt educated because Grant also points out to us, without a shadow of a doubt, he can be fussy with food. But as we, we were going through the segment, you could hear Grant's, mm, wow, moments. And I felt live, on air, that was the power of what we do. Not to mention, this suggestion to take something like seeds explain a little bit, enlighten Grant, enlighten myself, um, talked about the ease of it, and Julia put so many things in great perspective um, for us. But the value of this protein and other ways of doing it, we all know 
I don't need to sit down. And as I've grown older, I was a person raised on meat and potatoes. So protein was never really an issue. But as I've grown older, I'm not as interested in eating the piles of red meat that I used to. Um, not not what, sure why. That's a story of its own, I, I guess, somewhere. But I don't really have a problem with that, especially when we go through a segment like that. Grant being informed, yeah, Kel's informed, because I'm trying to think of how easy can I get maybe some of the protein that I don't have. And some people might say, well, I'm sure you've stocked up on enough with all the meat and stuff you've eaten for years. You don't need to worry about it. Sure you do. It's just silliness. Um, the fact is, what are alternatives? What are alternatives that are obtainable? And I find that really the biggest issue for me. So listening to a segment where I know uh, I can go out and get my groceries and get those, I can utilize them. I can incorporate them, Brock, into what I'm eating and what I do. But I always find it tremendous when we have a segment like that that, for me, works. Obviously, I think all of us feel that way. But I always love, and I'm not going to say in this case, Grant or myself was turned around as opposed to, hey, man, it's not hard to incorporate. But I do love on the show when maybe one of our opinions, Brock, is turned around. I have been part of this program for a number of years now, and... This is the greatest um, joy that I get to do is literally sit here and learn on the fly and maybe not implement every little thing that Julia or others are going to contribute to the program, but it stops right. and makes you think, hmm, maybe this is how I can implement it. I'm like Grant. I, I'm a picky eater. I meat and potatoes and give me my ice cream at the end and I'm good, you know, and I think sometimes, you know, you, you look at it and you say, I can implement it. And my favorite thing for Julia, when, when she's on a segment that I'm on, she'll say, oh, that's a Brock question, that, which means that's a question of, Mr. I'm not healthy, uh, how do I incorporate <laughs> that? And I love that about the way we get to do this show. I really do. Yeah. Well, as we always say, you sit here in class and learn so much. And a lot of time, it's wonderful to be able to be turned around, you know, towards something. And again, it's not all about, I'm against that. I disagree totally. But once in a while, you know, you, you get that way. Now, there are subjects I'm not going to be turned around about. Right, Mr. Trump? But still, it's just the way it is. <laughs> uh, Brock, thanks a lot for uh, doing this with us. Uh, a cut for time. We do this, ladies and gentlemen, every week at this time where we settle back. We remind you to go check out some of the things we might have mentioned and our podcast. Subscribe using your favorite podcast platform. We'll do this next Friday when we do another edition of Cut for Time. In a moment, though, on the other side of the break, we'll wrap up our program. We'll give you a little bit of an idea what's coming up on AMI-TV and AMI-audio over the weekend. We'll just go some featuring of things there and take care of that for you and preview the Tuesday edition because remember we're not here Monday it's the holiday we'll talk to you shortly with all that we'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break Now that we've got snow across so much of Canada, keep it in mind for the story we've got for you today on our closing moment. But first up, folks, on AMI-tv, let's tell you a little bit about what's coming up over the weekend on our broadcast networks. The feature film K-Pax airs Saturday on AMI-tv. Based on the novel of the same name, the movie follows a psychiatrist played by Jeff Bridges as he determines how to best help a patient played by Kevin Spacey 
who claims to be from a distant galaxy. Tune into KPAX Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join Joita Gupta Sundays on AMI-audio for The Pulse. This program is a weekly long-form dis- interview show that dives into issues impacting the disability community across Canada. That's The Pulse Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. Okay. Folks, we uh, hope you'll be back with us. A little program note, we are not here Monday. We will be back Tuesday. We'll tell you about our show in a little bit, but I kind of want to envision that skiing trip, okay, that you're on. A moose chasing skiers is what this next little item to finish off our day with. Imagine skiing one of the most serene and gorgeous slopes in America, and seconds later, you're literally being chased by a massive moose so close that he could nearly nip the back of your boots. That's exactly what happened to a skier named Kenny Reinerson in Jackson Hole, uh, uh, excuse me, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming recently, and this wild encounter was captured on video. The clip shows the moose on a full bolt down the mountain as Kenny did his best to avoid the big beast. Uh, there may have been some, uh, <clears throat> uh, oh, uh, expletive screams let rip, but eventually Reimerson uh, created a bit of distance between him and the uh, moose. Now, uh, an assistant mel- uh, you know, skier trying to help out uh, really assisted in the best way he could, screaming, go faster, go faster, as the animal <laughs> continued to give chase. Thankfully, it doesn't appear anyone was injured, but I can tell you, it could have been quite ugly. Could you imagine slip falling and that moose wouldn't have been stopping for anything? That would have been like stopping that city bus. Moose uh, are pretty huge. They they can go almost seven feet tall, standing on all fours and weigh about 1,600 pounds. Uh, This particular animal in question in the video that was taken does not appear to be as big, but tell you, it would screw up your day if he caught you. Not, Not end well. And uh, they can move to running at about 35 miles per hour for short distances. For reference, Usain Bolt at his fastest went 28 miles at his fastest. So thankfully, Kenny had skis on and not running shoes. (laughs) Talk about an awesome ski story, Brock. Unbelievable. I Maybe I wouldn't be damaged physically, but mentally, yikes. Wow. What's the top speed of your wheelchair? Uh, Six and a half kilometers per hour. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't make it. <laughs> no, he, he'd I know push I wouldn't. You. You'd have to hang on to his tail, maybe, and he'd, like, get you somewhere. Brock, as usual, pal, thank you so much for sitting in today. Uh, really had a lot of fun talking. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to the next time down the road. We shall. Coming up, folks, on Tuesday's program, we're very honored to have a special guest joining us. Canada's Accessibility Officer, Stephanie Cadu, just released her first report called Everyone's Business, which highlights the strides we've made towards a barrier-free Canada. She'll walk us through where we are and how far we have to go. Between fragrance sensitivity and allergies, Francis Wong tells us more about that. Francis Wong. Talk to you on Tuesday, folks, 2 p.m. Eastern. Take care of yourself. Have a wonderful weekend. Get out of here, will ya? Hosts, Kelly McDonald and Ramia Amuthan. Reporter, Grant Hardy. Senior show producer, Jeff Ryman. Visual producer, Megan McGrath. Producer, Marianne Dion jones Graphics, Andrew Antonello. 
Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. Control room operators, Daniel Penamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Director, Irene Solomon. Manager of live production, Paula Deneen. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of AMI-audio, Andy Frank. Director of TV production, Kara Nye. Vice President, content development and production, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media Inc. Hi, it's Irene, the director of Kelly and Ramya Show. We are almost at the end of February, and I look forward to March 1st for a couple of reasons. Psychologically speaking for me, no matter what the weather, March signals the beginning of spring. Spring training begins. The clocks spring forward. The days get longer. For me, it also signals the end of dry February. Looking forward to a nice cool glass of white wine. To be honest, I think that my relationship with alcohol has a complicated history. When I was younger, I dreaded large social gatherings and used alcohol as a way to relax, calm my nerves, and attempt to become a conversationalist, especially with unfamiliar people. I did, however, always long for a day when I could be social and comfortable and fun without the need to consume wine and spirits. Now that I'm older, wiser, and more confident, I don't need to use alcohol in the same way. I have, however, fallen into the trap of relaxing with a glass of wine after work, on weekends, alone or with friends. I don't think I have a problem with alcohol. Dry February hasn't been so bad so far, but I like alcohol. I like the taste, the variety, the feeling of quote-unquote being sophisticated, and the new guidelines about alcohol consumption have made me reevaluate my drinking habits once again. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.